0: And welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor and the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber, and if you would like to uh, contact me, you sure can on any of the contact links in the description of this fine, fine program. You can always call that listener hotline, 303-832-0217. Uh, happy New Year to everybody. This is the first show of the new year, 2022, and this is a uh, a new year and what will be in, in store for us and around the world, what we don't know, uh, what, what will be in the new year for commuting, uh, you know, that's that's yet to be determined, I suppose. That is really the million dollar question for the new year. I guess it all really depends on the workforce and where we will all be working. Uh, Our company was going to bring back everybody into the building this week, but that has now been pushed back until late January, and that might be the case at your company, too. I wouldn't be surprised just by the uh, traffic volume over the last couple of days that that is is actually happening right now. Uh, I I know city governments and county governments and state governments, there's a lot of people uh, that have now been forced to, again, work remotely because of the uh, Omicron deal. So uh, I think it is changing again the traffic patterns at least this part of the year. And when uh, our company gets back to normal, if it does, let's say we all kind of start coming back in, in late January, maybe other companies will start coming back in late January or February. And so if that's the case, then we should see more traffic in those uh, at that time. Um uh, so, so, Because I really think the return to the office will be one of the biggest drivers of more drivers on the road. There, there will be an increased number of stay-at-home workers forever. That is a permanent change to a lot of businesses and a lot of work schedules, working from home. Some people can do that. Not everybody can do that. But I think most companies, probably by the spring at the latest, March, April, May, uh, when the Omicron cases really start to ease up, they say the peak should be sometime in January and then start trailing off after that. So maybe by March, February, uh, the uh, recall, the great recall of workers, whatever workers there are out there, back to the office will be on. And we'll see highways once again filling up. It's interesting to see how the traffic has once again been pretty light over the last couple of days. Schools are back in session. Schools are a huge driver of, of traffic because there are so many people that are involved in the school system, from the teachers and administrators and uh, the lunch people and studio people. And, and I mean, there are so many people involved in that realm Of employment. uh, That is a really big driver of when people are out there on the roads. Uh, And I could always see a change in driving. Uh, You know, before the pandemic, before the world changed, uh, whenever you have schools out, you always had a decrease in traffic at certain times. Uh, It's the same. It was, you know, summer traffic patterns always changed, Uh, winter traffic patterns always changed. So, uh, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out over the next couple of weeks and months and see how many people are going to be coming back to the office. Um, and by the way, you know, I'm always asking what's driving you crazy? You know what's driving me crazy? Other TV stations stealing driving you crazy from me. Answering viewer questions isn't a new thing on television or radio or, or print. But answering viewer specific questions about roads and transportation by a TV guy is my thing. Not everybody else's thing. It's my thing. It's been my thing for, I think, seven or eight years. I've been doing this for a long, long time. A longer than KVOA in Tucson, that's for sure. They have a driving you crazy segment. That first started, as I could see, with investigative reporter Alexis Spurdine. She has now left TV, and she works for the Phoenix Chamber of Commerce. The beat is now covered by Daniel McFarlane, the certified meteorologist and multi-skilled journalist for KVOA Tucson. Not transportation expert. I'm sure Daniel's a really nice guy, and he's probably a great forecaster. But do you think Daniel could name three intersections... Di- But do you think Daniel could name just three different types of intersections? Doubtful. And there's CBS 17 in Raleigh. Laura Smith. She delivers what's driving you crazy reports. Laura also seems like a lovely person. She's working on her meteorology degree, online degree, at uh, Mississippi State University, where you see a lot of television people get meteorology degrees. But also, she covers these driving you crazy road stories, where you're supposed to write uh, an email to her, and she'll get, get after it for you. But I think she's more interested in doing, doing weather forecasting. What about Nate Tannenbaum? According to CBS 8 in Las Vegas, Nate has been a popular television and radio personality since arriving from Colorado in 1989. Hmm. How convenient. From Colorado, where I am. In addition to anchoring eight news now good day traffic reports, you'll also see Nate forecasting the weather on various newscasts. Well, at least Nate is doing weather and traffic, but he's also doing driving you crazy segments. These other TV news reports have viewer questions similar to what I do. But many of these topics are construction updates that come from a press release. I get all kinds of traffic-related press releases. Construction on this road, a water maintenance project on that road. Oh, look, we're going to be doing construction over here. I usually don't do that as part of the driving you crazy, because those are just run-of-the-mill, all the time, Here's a road project, occasionally we'll do them on TV as a short segment, but it's not a driving you crazy segment because it really doesn't get to the heart of there's a person out there somewhere who has a traffic issue and needs it answered because uh, they can't figure out how something works, what's going on, and they need an advocate, i.e. me, to find the information out for them. And these other stories that these other stations produce are pretty short, at least the online version. And usually the online version is just a mirror to their TV version. I I take time to research my stories. I was just today going through about two and a half hours of a Littleton City Council uh, uh, public meeting so I could... Uh, hear what they were uh, doing as a development for this one road. This, the, the question came in as there's a continuous lane going from the shopping center area that also this road kind of doubles as a, uh, a exit and entrance for this little uh, housing development, as well as this big shopping area that they want to redevelop the entire thing. And so there's a continuous lane to go From the exit there to the right to make a right turn continuous lane. But constantly, this guy is asking me, uh, why do so many people want to, when they're going to make the right instead of using the uh, continuous lane, do they stop, wait for traffic to just to continue past? And when there's an opening, then they turn into the right through lane or the left through lane and not use a continuous lane like they're supposed to. That was basically his question, but there's a lot more to that whole area because there's a, a redesign of the interchange right nearby, plus the redesign of the entire uh, development that could change the way that exit works. And uh, obviously the initial question, why don't people turn right into a continuous lane when they could? Anyway, I I was working on that story today and going through uh, a bunch of city council uh, mumbo-jumbo. But I, I don't think these other folks are doing that, right? Still, they're stealing my moniker. And I'm sure there are other television stations around the country also doing Driving You Crazy. I just haven't seen them yet. If you know of one besides Vegas and Raleigh and... Tucson, well, th- then let me know. Send send me a link, uh, or, or uh, some details, whatever, to any of my contact, uh, links there in the description of the show. I did send Nate Tannenbaum from Las Vegas an email the other day asking him to come here on the show. I've asked him uh, to – I wanted to get him – because I really do want to get back to the interviews of other traffic anchors from around the country and talk about how the pandemic traffic has uh, really uh, changed their city if uh, traffic is coming back. Uh, And and in Las Vegas specifically, uh, they they are obviously uh, were hurt so much by the uh, tourist industry going to zero. And now it's uh, coming back. And they also have that uh, boring company tunnel, the Elon Musk tunnel that's supposed to be going in Vegas. So I wanted to get an update on that. And I was also going to ask Nate about uh, his driving you crazy segments. But he has not replied back to me. So I'm guessing he either knows that he's been found out and doesn't want to face the music. Anyway, the request is still out there, so I'm hoping that Nate will get back to me. He's probably going to listen to this episode and then go, I'm not talking to that jerk ball. But if he does get back to me, I'd love to have him here on the show. All right, so I've talked a bunch on this show about the eventual war on parking in downtown urban areas. So I found an article by David Levitt. It was posted to the site Commercial Observer, and I found it very interesting. It's titled... Parking's back as an office amenity post-COVID. And this is what David Levitt says. It makes perfect sense if you're trying to avoid a contagious disease, drive your own car to work. There's evidence that more and more people are following this logic. The trend creates a conundrum for office owners and their tenants, the companies that employ workers who use the space. Where do you park all these cars as people trickle back to the office? It's like parking spaces have become a must-have office amenity, along with easily ordered lunch, access to outdoor space, and decent airflow. Before the pandemic, paid parking garages and lots at urban centers, including those that office workers routinely utilized, were on the way out. Ride hail apps such as Uber and Lyft, the micro-mobility boom, especially bikes and office bike rooms and the general draw of the so-called 15-minute city, along with the immense value of these garages and parking lots, given their locations, seem to be seeing them off. Dozens of garages and lots have been sold since the middle of the last decade explicitly as redevelopment opportunities for condominiums, offices, and other uses and did not necessarily include parking in their plans. There have been major infills via redevelopments in New York and Boston, in Denver, Chicago, and Charlotte. It looked like, until March 2020, like more Americans than ever would be training, busing, biking, or simply walking to the office. Uh, When they say training, I think he meant uh, on a train. Public transportation, basically. He continues. Now, through the statistics point, now, though, the statistics point to a surging demand for parking spaces for office based commuters. Nowhere is this clearer than the nation's largest commercial real estate market. The Port Authority of New York and New Jersey reported last year in late September that interstate bridge and tunnel traffic was close to pre pandemic volumes while path ridership on the routes that connect New Jersey and New York by train was down 62% from August of 2019. The Metropolitan Transportation Authority, the state agency that runs New York City's subway system, reported that subway ridership topped 3.1 million at the end of September 2021, a post-pandemic high. It typically carried 5.5 million riders, Pre-pandemic, MTA bridge and tunnel usage the same day the agency oversees the the Verrazano, Narrows, and RFK bridges and the Queens Midtown Tunnel, among others, was down just 1.8% from pre-pandemic levels, according to the agency. About 954,000 used its bridges and tunnels. The national numbers, too, reflect what's happened in New York. More people are driving. Again, this is an article by David Levitt posted to the site Commercial Observer, and he continues. Auto use crashed by about 45% in March and April 2020, according to the American Automobile Association. Since then, the rate has recovered robustly, but it's still nowhere near what it was pre-COVID-19. With the Delta variant out there and with Omicron out there, more of the people returning to work may be using their own cars, says Andrew Gross, AAA's national spokesman. New York City says it's not about to relax or reverse its pro-mass transit anti-car policies, which have resulted in closing numerous Manhattan streets to motorized vehicles, turning those streets into pedestrian malls, and promulgating a network of bike lanes throughout the borough. Quote, As we emerge from this pandemic, we cannot afford business as usual in our transportation system, said Scott Gastel, Assistant Commissioner for New York City's uh, Department of Transportation. People are returning to their cars, just means gridlock and pollution, which is why we're continuing to make record investments to improve bus service, expanding our bike lane network, and continue the process to implement congestion pricing. New York City is so much different. This is me talking now. So much different than just about every other city there is. There's so many people that have that, that live in in Manhattan, let's say, and they just don't own a car, so they need to have the it's just it's a different style of life. And there are some people that will commute from out of town to in town. And New York City has done a robust job of as they were talking about. Turning regular street lanes into bike lanes, making it much more difficult to drive around, implementing fees to drive into Manhattan, all to discourage private car use. But basically the idea here is, do you want to be in a bus full of people, even with your mask on, when the Omicron or other variants of the, of the virus is so easily transmissible? A lot of people don't want to be in that situation. So they're either choosing to stay home and or and or drive their own car. All right. Back to this uh, article by uh, David Levitt that was posted uh, to the site uh, Commercial Observer. While mass transit ridership is up compared to the depths of the pandemic, driving is up even more. Creating more parking spaces is a challenge. So it shifts to optimizing space utilization smart parking solutions or utilizing app or computer-based technology to help people find spaces closer to their designation existed even before COVID, but the virus made adoption more necessary for things such as being able to reserve parking ahead of time and being able to check on your phone where parking might be available. One example of such tech- such technology is Spot Hero, which offers drivers an opportunity to reserve and pay for private parking spots ahead of time often for lower than the retail price posted on the sign of the lot. It says on its website it serves more than 30 cities, including New York, and has parked more than 40 million cars since 2011. Another, flash, another one, Flash Parking, provides garage operators with a suite of cloud-based services that allow them to operate more efficiently. At the end of September 2021, Manhattan Plaza, a 998-space garage in Hell's Kitchen, over on the west side of uh, Manhattan, was charging $33.50 for two hours worth of parking. A 200-spot garage at 350 West 42nd Street run by Icon Parking was charging $56 for two hours. <laughs> Could you imagine that? That is the term I've been saying that for a long time. The deterrent to getting people into a downtown congested area is to charge them $56 to park there for two hours. I, I I would not do that unless I absolutely had to or I had uh, some kind of subsidy to pay for that parking. All right, at Spaces USA, the big innovation was providing drivers with touchless parking solutions. The system is designed to dial a number at both the entry and exit. Many drivers set it up so they can use Siri or Google Voice. Drivers can also pay in advance via a reservation system, but they still dial into the system at the entrance exit. Dialing the number takes about five seconds. This is faster than queuing a car, rolling a window down, and hopefully being able to reach a button or ticket. Most pay-in-lane exit systems take at least one minute to navigate payment. Jerry Skillet, executive chairman and founder of Spaces, who said he has been in the parking business for 40 years and has run thousands of parking facilities, says it was just a happy coincidence that the company technology provided an advantageous to health-conscious drivers. Skillet said he thinks that going forward, Even as office landlords sweat out the notion that working from home isn't going away and that workers long-term are more likely to visit the office three days a week rather than the old-fashioned five, parking operators will continue to do well. People do love their cars, he said. Parking demand will continue to climb. It just looks different. There will be less nine-to-fivers, and maybe there will be more, more people who work less hours in the office less days in the office, come in at different times, but the one thing you can say for sure is that they will be driving and they will be parking, and that's not going to change. All right, this is me talking again. Like I've said, if you can't park your car somewhere, especially at a, a, an affordable price, and, and, and especially if you it, where you work, then you just basically can't drive your car to work. You have to park it somewhere else and find your last mile problem into work. That's what urban car haters want to see. No cars in a downtown area. For example, there's this one person on Twitter. I'll just call him John. He has sent me hate messages on Twitter from time to time. And this is what he actually said the other day. Automakers are a dinosaur boomer industry and the opposite of dynamic and innovative, they are societal rentiers that twist land and law to suit their bloated business model. Rentier capitalism, by the way, is a term currently used by uh, to describe the belief in economic practice of uh, monopolization of any of, of property—physical, financial, intellectual property—and uh, gaining significant amounts of profit without any contribution to society. Basically taking and not giving. I wonder if uh, John has ever ridden in a car anywhere. He's always talking about walking from place to place and how cities should not, quote unquote, subsidize p- free parking for residents right out there, right at their house in, in city streets. And how all of these uh, lanes should be open for uh, walking and, and, and uh, or bikes and uh, the scooters and all that kind of stuff. I, I wonder if he's ever taken a, uh, an Uber or a Lyft. If he's ever had an, a delivery from Am- Oh, no, he would never use Amazon. Or, or Walmart Plus, probably, for that matter. Uh, maybe he would probably use Etsy. All right, let's say if John ever got a deliver delivery from Etsy, uh, uh, d- how do you expect it to get there? Uh, what about the Postal Service? Are they allowed to drive around uh, a, a downtown area? Or should you have your mail picked up at just one central hub that's flown in? Maybe. Do you think he's ever had DoorDash deliver food to his house? Hmm. It's easy for, let, let's say, a single man to to walk to your office from a downtown apartment if that's what you want to do. But not everybody wants to live that way. My kids don't. My kids would not want to live in a downtown urban core. I would not want them to live in the downtown urban core in a three-bedroom apartment and walk everywhere we go. And We just don't want to live that way. And, and I need personal transportation to make that happen. I'm willing to give up ever coming into a downtown area like that just to keep my personal vehicle. And and I'm sure people like John would say, good riddance, get out, stay out. We don't want you here anyway. And and that's what it's gonna become. It's gonna become uh, uh, us in the downtown urban core versus everybody else in the uh, less congested or less densely packed uh, city area and suburbs. If you have any questions or comments or, or, or about any of those, just send me a note. Uh, it's all, all the description or the uh, contact links are in the description of this fine, fine program. All right, now to the mailbag. It's Craig from Parker, Colorado, who writes to me saying, What's driving you crazy? I saw someone in a Land Rover type vehicle and, among, and uh, the steering wheel was on the right side where a passenger would normally sit in a normal American car. Is it legal to drive a car like that in the U.S.? The short answer, Craig, is yes. It's perfectly legal to drive a right-handed drive car, also referred to as a RHD, in the United States. As long as the car meets U.S. safety standards and is properly registered, there are no penalties for driving a right-hand drive vehicle. Now, most of us have only seen right-hand drive vehicles driven by mail carriers delivering our mail, They need it that way to get to the mailboxes on on the other side of the road. Most other vehicles configured with the right-hand drive are imported from countries like uh, the UK or from Japan, where driving on the left side of the road is normal. However, you can buy them right here in the United States, mostly from private sellers. I found several people selling right-handed drive vehicles in Colorado on the Facebook marketplace, as well as on Craigslist. Now, most of the vehicles that you would see have a right-hand drive configuration are imported to the United States. And any car, whether it's a right- or left-hand drive vehicle, that is imported, and it's newer than 25 years old, it needs to first comply with our federal motor vehicle safety standards, including EPA regulations. Now, I talked more about that in a previous story that I did about registering a car from Mexico in the United States. Now, the cost can be quite expensive, depending on what type of car you wanted to import into the United States, if it's newer than 25 years. One right-hand vehicle owner told me it cost him nearly $5,000 to import a vehicle from the UK to the United States, and that was on top of the cost of buying the actual vehicle. So if for him, it was worth it because he's going to start trying to sell these things here in the United States. So he's going to pass that cost along to his buyers. Now, most right-hand vehicles imported in the U.S. are older than 25 years, and they're generally more classic or unique or antique vehicles. And vehicles that are older than 25 years are exempt from EPA and DOT pollution and safety requirements, so it's it's easier for them to be imported to the U.S., if a vehicle is at least 21 years old, there's there's no EPA compliance requirements upon importation. A vehicle that's at least 25 years old can be lawfully imported to the U.S. Whether Regardless whether it complies with all DOT, Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards, it, that's what you call the 25-year rule. You might hear people saying the 25-year rule. Well, that's it. And a lot of people say you can't import a car that is newer than 25 years. Yes, you can. It just has to comply with uh, EPA and DOT requirements that we have here in the United States. Uh, Somebody was asking me uh, that other story about importing a Prius from Mexico City to... Colorado, and because the Prius is basically the same car with the same state safety and EPA standards sold in Mexico as it's sold here, there was no problem registering it here with, with basically little fee, if any. Uh, there was a little fee, I guess, that he had to pay uh, to register it here, but that's one of those exceptions. And it was definitely newer than 25 years. Now, one of the simplest ways to buy a right hand drive car in the United States is actually to buy one that's factory made. And there are several importers like Duncan Imports and Right Drive USA that do sell factory-made right-hand cars here in the United States. If you are looking for something brand, brand new that's a right-hand drive vehicle, you can actually order and buy one right now directly from Jeep. They make Wranglers that way, and you can have it custom-made. That is a right-hand drive Jeep Wrangler. You can also buy... A uh, former postal vehicle in the right-hand drive configuration from the U.S. government, as the GSA, the, the federal agency that buys new vehicles for uh, for uh, and then leases them uh, to uh, federal agencies. When when the vehicle leasing period ends, they sell those vehicles to the general public through an auction, and you can buy old postal vehicles with the right-hand drive configuration. And besides buying or importing a right-hand drive car, you could convert an existing left-hand drive car to a right-hand drive car. But those kits, they cost a few thousand dollars. They don't look so great when they're ex- installed because basically what you're doing is taking all the uh, – you're, you're not really moving the steering wheel over. You're, you're uh, I guess, putting a, a – a, a, a little connection from one side to the other and then connect. You're basically connecting you. So you could almost do it as a uh, let's say, uh, what is it? A, a, a student driver kind of scenario situation where you have the steering wheel still in, in, in the left-hand side, but you also, as let's say you were the instructor sitting in the passenger side, you have access to the wheels and the pedals and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you can also have professional installations but but that's thousands of dollars more than you know like a, a conversion kit. it just doesn't seem very practical to do that. And even though it seems fun to drive a right-handed drive vehicle e- here in the United States, a couple of right hand vehicle owners told me that it can be a little bit tricky. They say there there are unique blind spots that you should be mindful of. And there are drivers who aren't used to seeing a driver in uh, on that side of the vehicle. But on the other hand, the drivers told me the other drivers are generally curious about that configuration and ask them any questions about driving one. I saw this on the Casey Jerry Law Firm website saying that it can be dangerous to drive a right-side vehicle uh, when you're turning, especially on U.S. roads. And they say that Postal Service workers aren't allowed to make U-turns or make left turns in their mail trucks because their right-hand drive vehicle has such limited visibility. But I've seen postal workers make left-hand turns. I haven't seen them make a U-turn, but it, I guess it could make sense. Um, but if you think about the line of sight for oncoming traffic, if you're sitting on the right side of the car, the limitation of your of your view might be a little bit tricky. Um, so I, I guess that, that that's just what they say, but I've seen just the opposite. Well, I guess the bottom line, is, as long as the right-hand drive vehicle meets the U.S. safety standards, it's probably properly registered. Uh, there aren't any penalties or fees for driving a right-hand car vehicle, and, and you, of course, you can buy one from uh, Jeep right now, from uh, uh, Custom Made. So there you go. Get out there and, and go get a right-hand drive car if you want. Sounds pretty interesting. Anyway, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, a driving you crazy story, please uh, send it to me on any of the contact links uh, in the description of this fine program. Thanks again for being here. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the Traffic Guy. Be safe and as always, happy motoring.